Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Law and Liberty, a Texas Attorney General podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Date. Today, we're taking a closer look at election integrity and the realities of voter fraud. Joining me is Assistant Attorney General Jonathan White, the Chief of Election Fraud Section of the Attorney General's Special Prosecutions Division. In his 12 years with the Attorney General's office, he has prosecuted more than 200 election fraud offenses. In addition to heading the Attorney General's prosecution team, he works and consults with elected prosecutors across the state to promote election integrity and enforce Texas election laws. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank so. You. To start off, as we're heading into another election year, there is a lot of growing concern about the integrity and security of our elections. Mainstream media tends to center these concerns around influence from the outside of the states. However, to set the record straight with a simple yes or no answer, are there real tangible threats to our democratic process within our own country? Yes, there are. I thought so. <laughs> We've seen reports here and there of election fraud, but that can seem like a broad term, and it does go into several areas. But for people who are just finding out about this issue, what exactly is election fraud and why is it so detrimental? Generally speaking, election fraud is the intentional, unlawful manipulation of the electoral process, and typically we're talking about activity intended to affect the outcome of the election. The detriment of election fraud, one thing you hear quite often is that one fraudulent vote or every fraudulent vote cancels out uh, a lawful vote of a voter, and that's absolutely true. It's true on a literal sense, on a one-to-one level, one vote cancels out another. But it also has a systemic um, sense to it that in areas of Texas, there are folks that believe that their voice doesn't count, that this election, their local elections most of the time, they believe, some of them, that the election's already bought, paid for, and delivered. So what point is there in engaging in the process? And um, that's, that's, uh, that leads me to the conclusion that fraud suppresses votes systemically as well as literally. Got it. And is there a particular form of election fraud that occurs more commonly than others? We really see three basic types of voter fraud again and again. Um, we see illegal voting, we see voter assistance fraud, and we see mail ballot fraud. And I can break those down a little bit for you. Okay, yeah, would you? I think that most folks are familiar with illegal voting, at least in the sense of we're talking about maybe double voting, people voting more than once in an election, or voter impersonation. Uh, ineligible voting is another one where we have felons, non-citizens, non-residents voting in elections when they're not eligible to do so. And then we also have voting another person's ballot without their consent or without their direction. That would also fall under the umbrella of illegal voting, the form of election fraud that most people are familiar with. In addition to that, voter assistance fraud is when either in person at the polling place or at the voter's home with a mail ballot, a campaign worker will purport to provide quote-unquote voting assistance to a voter in order to get between the voter and their ballot and to influence that voter's vote for the candidate that they support. Um, mail ballot fraud is something, and, and you'll notice that all three of these categories can be, are kind of closely intertwined. Yeah, it sounds like several could go on at the same time. That's right. They'll bleed into each other. Mail ballot fraud we also refer to as vote harvesting quite mm -hmm. frequently. A lot of people have heard that term, but they don't know exactly what it entails. Typically, we're talking about paid vote harvesters who seed their target precincts with ballots. And by seeding, we're talking about basically blanketing these targeted precincts that they want to swing for their candidate with uh, mail ballot applications 
And then they'll go back out and harvest those mail ballots when they arrive with the voter. And they may approach the voter in an official capacity, not that they have one. They'll purport to be there in an official capacity. We're here to help you with your ballot today. Or they may arrive with ballot in hand because they fished it out of the mailbox before they knocked on the door or rang the bell. They may talk about one race at the top of the ballot that they don't care about and then fill out the rest of the ballot for their slate of candidates that they represent. And so that, that process is very often invisible to the voter, so they don't even know what's happened to their vote. The harvester takes the ballot with them and they leave. So that's, that's what we refer to as mail, mail ballot fraud or vote harvesting. Those three areas blend together, but to put some numbers on them, illegal voting we see in about 40% of our cases. Um, assistance fraud we see in about a third of our cases and mail ballot fraud we see in about two-thirds of our cases those percentages add up to more than a hundred because usually we have two or maybe even all three of those happening and are the instances of voter fraud that we see more common in certain types of elections the, what I mean by that is are we more likely to see fraud in local elections versus a massive general election or are they about even in terms of risk uh, yeah for sure We'll see, um, we might be more likely to see voter registration fraud, for example, ahead of a presidential election or even a midterm election. We generally see vote harvesting happening in local elections or in contested primaries or even in close races in a November race. Generally, the rule of thumb is the lower the voter turnout in a specific race, the smaller the margins between the two candidates, the higher the success rate or the chance of success that a vote harvesting operation will have to actually swing an election. That's when you're coming down to maybe two or three votes to decide an actual election. It could be two or three, but you know, when a vote harvesting operation may capture 500, it may capture a thousand votes. So, I mean, we really have the potential to swing a lot of close races or any race with a lower voter turnout. So do you have a sense of where the election violations stem from? Is this an issue of individuals, organized groups, or corruption within the actual government? We see all three. We've got plenty of cases that involve individuals that just want their voice to count louder uh, than, than everyone else's, or ineligible voters that, you know, they know they're not eligible to vote in this election, but they want to vote anyway, and they do. They vote illegally. But a lot of our volume comes from organized vote harvesting operations, like we were talking about earlier, where uh, they concentrate on mail ballot fraud and voter assistance fraud. Uh, they may be lightly organized. Maybe a, a candidate and their family members, some of their friends may go out there and, and engage in this activity, or it could be even very well organized where you have someone at a political consultant level that's actually operating or supervising a group of, of vote harvesters. Uh, vote harvesters can also be independent kind of mercenary types that set themselves up in their area as, hey, I control 500 votes. You want my 500 votes, you pay me X amount of money. And then you have candidates that are actually sort of forced to decide whether they're going to engage in this process or possibly lose. Yeah, if they, they don't. need to hire an electoral hitman. Yeah, exactly right. So that's where a lot of our volume comes from. And as to government corruption, which you mentioned, you have kind of a chicken versus the egg scenario there because some of these elected officials get into power by using, you know, unlawful means like vote harvesting. And then once they're in that position, they'll continue to abuse their power or abuse that office in order to stay in power. Whether that means promising jobs or contracts to, you know, folks in exchange for getting these votes and keeping them in power. Or even, you know, we've had cases where employees of a school district or a, or a city are actually having their jobs threatened if they don't vote the right way. 
and the entity may appoint or whatever you want to call it, an individual, an employee in that organization or that entity to uh, be an enforcer and ensure that all the employees get to the polling place and wow. that they vote and they'll walk them through the process, quote unquote, assisting them. And we have school teachers being assisted, folks who teach our children. Supposedly they have to have help vote. It's really someone watching them to make sure that vote's cast the right way and uh, to, to make sure that a vote is extracted from each and every employee of that district or that city. And, uh, you know, that's unfortunate. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that we, we look at and focus on. I'm glad that you do. Well, of course, everyone wants to see their desired outcome in an election, but I don't think that most people are willing to commit fraud to achieve that. But most Americans would be surprised at how many instances of voter fraud actually occur in that election fraud happens pretty much everywhere. Without divulging too much information on any ongoing cases, can you tell me about a case that really surprised you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that every every time we see something for the first time, it it you know it it certainly surprises or intrigues us. Um, and after doing this for a while, you know you st- you see the same things happen over and over again, and it doesn't really surprise you anymore. But I remember my very first case at the attorney general's office, you know, eleven or twelve years ago. We got a case because someone bought a used car down in South Texas and they found 50 uh, voter cards, a stack of 50 cards in the glove box. And they thought, well, this doesn't look right. No kidding. (laughs) They reported it. We ended up prosecuting uh, an election clerk in the county elections office who was illegally selling fraudulent voter cards to the politiqueras or the vote harvesters down there. And um, that's that was my first case. We eventually found out that the vote harvesters were actually going to the colonias and paying people $20 to use those cards and vote in local elections. Uh, but that's, you know, that's that's my first case. We've also um, had a case in another South Texas county where all the vote harvesters were bringing all of their ballots back to a print shop where the head vote harvester would make sure that all those ballots were voted the right way. And even if the envelopes were sealed, they would steam them open and check the votes, and we had votes being changed or canceled out um, or even ballots being destroyed entirely if they weren't voted the right way. So stuff like that, um, you know, I guess is is interesting the first time you see it, and, and then you start to see these things happen again. We, we had a woman who impersonated her dead sister for 25 years, voted for herself and her sister as well as collecting her Social Security benefits. I was surprised the first time we found a dead voter uh, voting, but uh, but it happens. So, like I said, every every scheme is intriguing the first time you see it, and after a while, you're not really surprised anymore. Yeah, well, these fraudsters are pretty sneaky about the way they're skirting around election laws, but we know that they do get caught, clearly. You have a job here and are very successful at it. What are the penalties for the people that violate our election laws? It's really everything from low-level misdemeanors that carry the possibility of jail and a small fine all the way up to mid-level felonies with the possibility of prison and a large fine. We've improved some of the very weak penalties that we used to have for mail ballot fraud while we still have rather weak penalties for assistance fraud as well as for voter registration fraud. And while we're talking about the law here, it seems like common sense to have strict procedures for participating in an election, but people committing election fraud have found a way around the current safeguards. So what challenges do you and your team face when it comes to finding and stopping instances of election fraud? That's a great question. Um, And it's one that 
I could probably spend quite a bit of time on various challenges that we face in these prosecutions because they are very challenging, both the investigation aspect and the prosecution aspect. But I'll try to keep it brief and just throw a few areas out there. You know, first of all, we have inadequate safeguards in many areas. We're not doing a good enough job preventing the widespread abuse of assistance fraud and curbside voting. Uh, or really even mail ballots, um, although we've made some tremendous strides in increasing penalties and things like that. We really need to have detection systems in place uh, for all of these things. But, you know, the safeguards that we do have, as you mentioned earlier, are easily subverted by folks who study the law with an eye to committing fraud. And there's a tremendous amount of resistance by certain groups to us actually installing adequate safeguards. So that's a challenge. We really need more resources for enforcement generally. Um, and though we've made some tremendous strides in recent years, we still have a ways to go on that. Another aspect of this that's kind of completely different is just in the nature of voting. Conceptually, it happens kind of in a black box by design because we want there to be secret ballot. We want voters to be able to cast votes free of intimidation, um, free of interference. And we also want to accommodate voters who have legitimate problems that need help, need assistance in voting in different ways. So with that said, you know, the black box effect is, is that, that there's not a whole lot of evidence produced of election fraud because of the secrecy of it, because of all of the, the safeguards in place that protect a voter's vote in terms of really it's just its secrecy. So it's a lot like taking, a, you know, a, a department store or like a Walmart and stripping all the security cameras out of it and changing all the registers to self-checkout and then letting everybody come and go as they please. And you come back, you know, a week later and find out that some people were honest and some people weren't. When you compare the records to the inventory and you know stuff was stolen, but try to figure out who did it. Mm -hmm. You just have no evidence. You have no records. You're chasing ghosts. In a lot of ways, um, voter fraud investigation is the same exact way. So the, the last area I'll mention is that particularly with vote harvesting, and assistance fraud, these folks that engage in it are preying on soft targets. They're looking for soft targets, not just in terms of uh, the voters themselves, but in terms of the safeguards in the system. They're looking for the holes. They're looking for the places where we create accommodations uh, to help people and to exploit those in order to you know, really get into those areas that we've left open in the law for them to operate. Then when they go and, and select their voters, they're looking for, for elderly folks. They're looking for folks with disabilities. They target low-income communities. They, they look for voters that don't really care about their votes so that they're easier to pry away from them. That also leaves us challenges when we investigate because we're dealing with folks who may not remember. We're dealing with folks who that part of the, the process is really invisible to them as well as we talked about earlier where a ballot gets voted by an assistant, quote-unquote, and the voter really never sees how that ballot is voted. Maybe they never even wanted to vote in the first place. Maybe they had no idea who the candidates were. Mm -hmm. So trying to piece that together and you know, investigate it and prosecute it after the fact, those are additional challenges we face. Sure, and they're challenges that the fraudsters rely on you having to face. That's exactly right. So with improving election security and going down this path, is this a problem for legislators or polling stations, law enforcement? Who needs to really take control of this situation to remedy it? It's, it's got to be a combination of, of all of those. I think it's a, it's a problem that we have to take reasonable measures to attack from every angle um, if we're going to make a difference. Yes, we need better safeguards. We need better laws. 
But if we're going to actually get our arms around election fraud, in particular vote harvesting and assistance fraud, we need both better laws and we need more law enforcement resources. It comes down to manpower, ultimately, when you're trying to retrace the steps of these vote harvesting organizations that hit the pavement across the state. I've also advocated for the idea that we should provide a civil remedy for victims and for candidates that are harmed by uh, organized election fraud or vote harvesting operations. Mm -hmm. you know, because of the limitations that we have on government resources, uh, there should be a better way for folks to recover personal damages as well as even maybe impose a statutory penalty on folks that violate the election laws by, by harvesting votes. Uh, those statutory penalties could fund election integrity, so it's a it's a cost that we put back on the people who are creating it, and uh, that's you know currently the only remedy under the law is an election contest. It has to be filed within ten days of most elections, thirty days of others. You have to figure out what happened to you, unravel it all, go out and try to interview three hundred voters and find out what it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. So. A civil remedy, I think, would go in a long way to filling in the gaps that we have with governmental resources. I agree. And are there any partners that we're currently working on in that aspect or combating actual fraud on the ground? Well, sure. And, and of course, we're always happy to work with legislators who are looking to develop solutions. But our, our partners across the state are elections administrators. Um, Every county, all 254 counties in Texas run uh, their own elections. So we have 254 elections in Texas every time. And uh, those EAs, or elections administrators, are our partners in detecting uh, fraud. And we want to continue to work with them to recognize fraud and, and combat it rather than having them be just observers. And that's tricky because... Uh, neither the elections administrators or the Secretary of State, who's our chief elections officer in the state of Texas, neither of them really have enforcement authority. They don't have the ability to really do something about fraud when they see it. So um, we're okay with that. We can work with that. We just need them to report what they see to us, and we need them to identify you know, voter fraud patterns when they see evidence of vote harvesting operations and things like that to flag that for us and, and refer that to us beyond those guys, the election officials. We also look for opportunities wherever possible to involve local partners in law enforcement and prosecution to share resources uh, and that sort of thing. And whenever we find a local prosecutor, a district attorney or a county attorney who's willing to take on an election case, we lend all the knowledge and resources that we've developed in election fraud to help them uh, to be successful. Because no doubt about it, these are tough cases. Um, but we're here to help, and we're going to continue growing those relationships. I think it's essential uh, to this fight. So we have a long way to go in improving the law, but we have seen a few improvements so far, right? We sure have. So what improvements have we seen in the law? One that comes to mind immediately uh, is in the area of, of vote harvesting. Uh, under the old law in Texas, vote harvesting, which you know we're talking about actually um, going around and collecting ballots from people, going out, you know, they used to follow the mail truck, right? They just, some, some areas they still follow the mail truck around um, and, you know, either fish ballots out of mailboxes or actually go to the voter and get those voted the right way, right? So it, it used to be under the old law that you could, you could really just collect as many mail ballots as you possibly could from voters. We had cases where we had Walmart bags stuffed full of hundreds of ballots that would be delivered to you know the the hub of the vote harvesting organization and there were no restrictions on it other than you had to sign the back of the 
uh, carry your envelope and provide your name as the assistant who was mailing ballots for voters. Um, and I always found it interesting that how many states, other states, that that practice was illegal in. California was one uh, where that type of harvesting, just collection of ballots, was illegal up until last year, and they legalized it. It had been legal in Texas for however long, up until you know December 1st of 2017, when a new law went into effect that said, hey, you can still do this, but it has to be a legitimate voter assistance process. We're not going to just let people go collect ballots for their campaign, yeah. edit them, change them, throw them away, that sort of thing. There's so many dangers involved with mail ballots. I always point to the analogy of the polling place where if you had paper ballots, it would be the equivalent of someone standing at the end of the line after the voting booths where you would take your ballot and you would actually deposit it into the scanner. And, and they would just sit there and collect ballots from people. I'll take that for you and stuff them into a bag and tell them, well, I'll, I'll just I'll walk these around the building and I'll deposit these later for you in the scanner. You know, we would say, no, are you crazy? You know, we would never allow that to happen. But we did, for so many years, allow people to do the exact same thing with mail ballots. So now it has to be a legitimate voter assistance process, which means the voter has to be physically incapable of depositing their own ballot in the mail. And if that is the case, then you can still help them with that, and that's no problem. The old rules apply for you know, giving your information on the back of the envelope. But uh, it's, it's no longer just collect as many, many ballots as you can get your hands on. Right, so we're making step-by-step -step progress in terms of securing the elections and making sure that we're upholding election integrity, especially now that we're moving into another major election and a pretty contentious one. Before we wrap up, you, you do a lot of intensive work with election fraud. You see a lot of complicated cases. Why did you decide to take on the task of investigating and prosecuting cases like this? Yeah, I really like this question, um, even though my answer may be the most disappointing uh, of, I, all, I doubt <laughs> of it. all the answers so far. But, the, you know, the simple answer is that I started getting assigned election fraud cases as part of my public integrity caseload pretty much from the beginning of my work here at the AG's office. And really, to be honest, they weren't my favorite cases. I saw the cases of vote harvesters messing around with mail ballots, committing these little misdemeanor violations of the election code, trying to influence voters to vote for their candidates. And really, you know, my feeling at first was these people just need to get a life. You know, they need to just stop messing around with this stuff. It's just annoying that they would do this. But it was kind of a gradual process for me that began to uncover the significance of races being won and lost because of mail ballots and the impact that it has on the community when corrupt officials get in office and stay in office uh, because of mail ballot fraud. And at the same time, our investigative experience kept growing. We began discovering how deep these vote harvesting operations went and how significant the impact was. Uh, and we saw elderly voters. We saw folks who didn't want to vote, who didn't know who they were voting for, uh, disabled voters being targeted, and really their votes being bought and sold like commodities. And, you know, all the while, vote harvesters hide behind this fa false narrative that they're just helping people. We're helping people vote. We're helping their voices be heard. But really, the truth is that these folks are suppressing the will of their communities. Um, they are subverting the voters' individual votes, and they're converting those votes into stolen votes for money or for political influence and for jobs, for contracts. So when that became clear, you know, my distaste for corruption 
which really drew me to prosecution and white collar crimes and public integrity crimes. Just it really just translated directly over into voter fraud cases, and that keeps me motivated to this day, along with you know fighting for truth in a society where you know truth doesn't really seem to matter anymore and facts don't seem to matter. Um, I think it's a very important fight. So whenever I hear that voter fraud doesn't exist, it motivates me that much more to not move on to something else. This is where I belong because there really aren't that many of us that do this work. Well, I'm certainly glad that you are chief of this division and heading up all those prosecutions. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast. I appreciate all of the information, all the knowledge we can get out about this issue. So just from Texas Attorney General to you, thank you. It's my pleasure. You can learn more about the Texas Attorney General's office on our website at www.texasattorneygeneral.gov. If you have a question about our office or are seeking assistance, call our Constituent Affairs Office at 800-252-8011. Don't forget to follow us on social media, and for updates, find us on Twitter at TXAG. And remember to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcast and follow us on Spotify, Google Podcast, Radio Public, or any of your preferred podcast platforms. Thanks, y'all.